Established in 2020, the Authors' Porch is a space for authors to share their literary works of art. Founded by C.J. Ives Lopez, the Authors' Porch puts authors first and becomes a premier destination for all at every level in their careers. When you join the Authors' Porch, we want you to think of us as a beacon of light, bringing you home to a porch where your family is waiting to usher you into your greatness. From live cast to podcast, blog posts, and most recently, the magazine, the Authors' Porch brings promotional services and advice to authors to get their writing published. Whatever the issue, the Authors' Porch connects writers with the service desire to create their dreams into reality. Hey everybody, welcome to the Authors' Porch. We're back for a second night in a row, and tonight we have J.W. Zarek. How are you doing over there? Hey, CJ, I'm fantastic. Thank you for inviting me and having me on the Authors' Porch tonight. I am so excited to talk to you. When I read your bio, I had to literally think, um, have I done anything in my past that I do not want to talk to J.W. on the show? You're good. You're very good. You're good. <laughs> so, guys, let me introduce JW to you before we get started and have this wonderful conversation and some things that may be revealed or may not be revealed. We'll find out. <laughs> so, JW catches naughty folks for the government. Hmm, interesting. He has taught English conversation in Japan and can analyze anyone's handwriting, which we're going to do some of that here on the show, maybe. Uh, he, when he worked for the FBI, his thesis on red flag behaviors found in relationships earned him an invitation to present a paper at the first annual Forensics Congress in China, which led him to write his award-winning book, Naughty or Nice, Whose List Are You On? I hope I'm not on anybody's list. <laughs> not even Santa's at this point. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Don't tell him. Don't tell him. <laughs> It is available as a handout during lectures. His latest book, The Devil Pulls the Strings, as seen on ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, Tickler News Live, and the New York Post has received multiple accolades and awards. JW, you are a ball of wow. <laughs> Thank you very much, CJ. Yeah, so... I I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Great cover, by the way. Like the, not like cover, like FBI stuff, but book cover. <laughs> so let me ask you this. This book, right? Uh, it's, you've, you've got other books as well. You've got, you said this is your third book, right? Yeah, this is my third book. Uh, if I can go into the first book I had to write. Uh, Naughty and Ice, whose list are you on? It came from a thesis, and that just came looking at red flag behaviors because once you see them, you can't unsee them. And the relevance for that is, hey, you meet someone, you fall in love, you want to bring them home to meet mom and dad for dinner. Uh, however, when you bring them home, you'd like to qualify those red flags uh, before you bring them home because you don't want to find out you and your parents are the main course. And that's what a serial killer per se. So with the red flags, I had to write that only because I believe everyone has the right to be safe. And you may need one red flag. Another person may need 10 red flags. But the point is, 
when you see a red flag that indicates excessive anger or over-possessiveness or stubbornness, where to the point we all have good and bad traits. However, when they're extreme, to know what triggers them and how to respond, once you see them, you naturally adjust to keep yourself safe. So for couples and relationships, the benefit is, oh, you're always bumping heads, opposites attract. However, once you see why your spouse, partner, friend, coworker, subordinate, supervisor are doing what they're doing, you now go, ah, and you understand and you can adjust because it's important. Because an example of a red flag is a business owner in New York wrote me, they wanted to hire a salesperson and they said, are there any red flags? And I had said, yeah. I said, what will the person be doing? Will they be with coworkers or on the phone doing sales? And they said, well, on, on the phone doing sales, I said, okay, great. However, there's one disclaimer, whatever you want, you have to ask permission if you want to put something on their desk or take something off because they actually will throw stuff at you. And that, other than that, and they were extreme and possessive. And so that was important to qualify that. And ironically, the owner, they did hire the person and they did call me back a week later to say the previous person that they checked, their employer, they actually had to fire the person because they actually threw a stapler at another coworker. Okay. And, and handwriting, yes, can be that relevant, but it also relevant for when you're going to get therapy with a psychologist. Now, what's relevant for, I had a psychologist on a plane overhear a conversation, and she actually put her case file in my face uh, to say, I need your help. Could you please just tell me what you see? And the person was suicidal and didn't believe anything the therapist said. And I gave a list of other things I saw, and the doctor, the therapist was upset, and she's like, and I'm like, what's wrong, doc? And she said, that assessment took me over eight weeks to come up with. And the significance of that is, and why it's relevant where a therapist could incorporate this into their practice, is you see on a platter everyone's emotional trauma uh, for their past, all their issues. Because if I take a picture of a winter scene, mm -hmm. you clearly can see it's a winter scene. And most people can be like, yes, we all agree it's a winter scene. Well, handwriting is a snapshot of a person for everything. And, and even though, yes, you learn a writing system and forget it, and everybody writes differently, and even the same person will make changes in their writing. The point is, it's still you, and I can see your idiosyncrasies. And now when they get really wacky, I can now see a different picture. And for doctors, thousands of years, they prescribe medicine. It's not yeah. uncommon for a doctor or medical personnel to refer to the patient's handwriting to see changes to say, oh, I have to adjust the dose of medicine. Uh, really? and, and well, it's relevant if you're taking a depressant, you get a little slow. And if you're yeah. taking something that accelerates your biochemistry and gets really fast, well, it's important to adjust. Um, so when I was in the Navy, I started to see wild things in handwriting that kept reappearing as I was interviewing people for their background investigations uh, to put them in for clearances. And I had to find out what the heck did this mean? And that put me on a journey of a three-year internship and, and getting certified. But even people, when I ask them, because I keep everything clean. And when I look at your handwriting, everything's light and lively and fun for entertainment, family value purposes. Uh, your issues are your own. So it's just fun, light and lively for here. But with one person who was going through, I asked the question, oh, what 
what medicine has the doctor prescribed for you? Yeah. And the person got nervous. Said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what's in your system is there for 28 days. He's like, you can see that I'm taking marijuana? And I go, well, yeah, but I'd rather qualify it as what prescribed medicine does a doctor have you on because we can't get you a clearance if it's marijuana and you have to go to see the doctor after mm -hmm. we have this conversation because you have to take your analysis. But the whole big thing is it's beneficial. It's helpful for things like this. It's fun and entertaining. If you had your yeah. spouse behind you, standing behind you, he would affirm everything I said. And, yeah. and but but moving from that, that book was just there because I just wanted people to see red flags where you see them in writing, where somebody's really, wow, they're just very possessive. And that yeah. might be relevant if you're a free spirit and and you don't want people controlling your life or over controlling for everything from what you eat, dress, anything. But just those little things to be made aware of. It makes your life easier. Um, so while we're here, if you'd like. I can do your handwriting now, or we can do it later. Uh, you, you you have piqued my interest, and, and everybody knows I'm an open book um, for the most part. Obviously, um, I everyone knows I I suffer from anxiety and depression, mm -hmm. and I do take medication for that. I'm not I'm not afraid to be very open about that, okay. and. Um, yeah, I'll I'll show you my handwriting before I tell you everything. And then everyone's like, he already knew everything. No, I'll be I don't know anything about you other than I, I've seen some things online, but it's all good uh surrounding the Blarney Stone. And uh, you're an amazing <laughs> author who's written 20 yeah. books. So but you know th that I can go on and on about you though. But yeah, but let me I'd love to see your handwriting. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it. I wrote it. Can, let me see if is it close enough? Well, where am uh, I? A little closer. So again, I, I don't know you, so I'm just going to go ahead. People can print or do cursive, but in here, so let's see what it is. Uh, yeah, you sometimes get attention drawn to you, whether ask or not. If you weren't doing what you're doing, you could be a perfect third grade teacher. Um, let's see. Let's see what else. Uh, very uh, deep thinker. I like that. Um, matter. Of, can you put it a little closer? I'm getting older, so my vision is gone. Oh, what I like this is you are the epitome of a person in a relationship. You you hold in your heart one person, which is phenomenal. You're frank. Oh, I like that. Very honest. So you call it like it is. Wow, I really like that. Oh, some things you don't want to face up to in your past. That's fine. Sometimes you volunteer stuff that other people wouldn't have expected. Wow. You definitely, definitely, I'm going to show you how to do this. You are very, very practical, but I'm going to show you how you can even become even more more uh, confident. Um, let's see what else. Hold your it up a little higher. So I want to see. Okay, yep. You are definitely very guilty, uh, but you 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 feel a little guilty that uh, a you don't listen more, and you feel a little guilty. You're not tending to your physical activities, exercise, um, and, and there are some things. Wow, I like that. You you definitely are creative. Um, and if you were on a fishing trip and I asked, hey, how big was the fish you caught? Your hands might really far outstretch and you're able to uh, <laughs> exaggerate the size of the fish. But that's all I'm going to share for now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyone will tell you I exaggerate. I am one of the I am very you. So <laughs> I am not like a full Italian or anything, but it's right. in my blood like great great grandfathers. <laughs> but I'm like, yes, the spider was this big. <laughs> my husband would be like, it was this big. Of course. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, every single bit of that was true. Every single bit of it. And, you know, I think that we all grow as people and, and have to learn. Um, so, yeah, I like that. So here's your so homework assignment. Classes in session. So the cool part is, where like are your it. arms on, on, on your body? Where they're are at my... your shoulders, right? They're not at your ankles. That would be silly. They're not at your waist. Yeah. But they're naturally on on your, your – they're high up. And let me just come a little up. They're, they're more high up. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing, the letter T, where you cross the letter T says mm-hmm. – there's over 112 different traits with the letter T, but what's relevant – where you cross the letter T signifies different things. For, and this is dealing with esteem as one of the factors. Now, have you ever heard of the president, John F. Kennedy? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people have. He was a visionary, a dreamer. But one thing that's relevant, all of his T's were as high as they could be touching the letter at the top, be it lowercase or higher case. And that's because very confident. And you can learn the same thing where your T is crossed, very practical. So you hit all your goals. That's fantastic. But what's really amazing, and here's what's significant about handwriting going beyond. Now, Jack Canfield, he's he's a, a little well-known author, chicken soup for the soul. Uh, amazing guy. I got him to do a Rocky impression in, in Philadelphia. So, yes. <laughs> and in this, he had said it takes a behavior 27 to 30 days before it becomes permanent, meaning you do a habit repetition. So that's why it works. And with handwriting, you can change things to elicit an effect. So in this case, your homework assignment is you're going to just change where you cross your T-bar. And Mm. instead of crossing at the center, you're going to be aware every time you draw the letter T, you're going to cross it at the very top of the letter, be it at if it's a lowercase or a capital letter, doesn't matter. You're just going to get into that habit of whenever you write a letter T to cross it at the top. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to do this for two to three weeks, 21 days. And as you do that, you'll then naturally start to forget it because once a behavior or habit is locked in, you just don't have to do it consciously anymore. And here's the best part. Everyone around you is going to start to notice your boost in confidence going up. And they're going to be just noticing you're going to have an extra kick in your step and just things are going to, you're going to have more better days than less better days. And the best part is everyone around you notices first. Now I was at a library doing community service and I actually had an individual who (laughs) he had all the earmarkings of a serial killer in the making. And he was fascinated and he said, Oh, can I bring in some samples of my handwriting? Sure. Sure. The next day, he brought in four. These are black and white composition notebooks. Now, in fourth grade, many kids use composition notebooks that are black and white. So he showed them to me. And I said, oh, are you, are you a, a writer? No. Uh, are you a scientist, a researcher? No. Is that your journal? No. What is this? Oh, it's just my thoughts. Okay. And as I look through his handwriting, when you are looking at People who, not evil, very naughty, and they are serial killers, murderers, rapists. There are certain malformations that start to appear in the handwriting. And when you see these malformations, it, it, when they now you get more, it makes a really big picture. And he had all the, the possible, but he also was a, a dreamer. So he actually didn't connect his T-bar 
and he and and of things I diagnosed, or I'm sorry, I shared with him. As I said, you know, he he uh, would set animals on fire as a young child. He also would torture them. He would torture women. And uh, and I asked if a woman in his life, a mother figure, tortured him as a young child, and it was his mother. Mm-hmm. But all these things came out, and I always, whenever I'm traveling, doing stuff, I have three therapist numbers I keep with me. So when I meet people who. In this gentleman's case, he had said, oh, could you show me how to boost my confidence and self-esteem? And I said, after you contact this therapist and just just discuss things, and then maybe uh, two months, you get a hold of me. Sure, maybe. Because I, where for you, you're practical. I have no problem sharing and showing you how to be more confident. <laughs> but as a personal thing, I don't want to ever make serial killers confident. Right. And so, it's but kind it was of scary. And well, what was scary is he asked if he could bring in his girlfriend's uh, handwriting too, and they were opposites. She liked to be tortured and abused. He liked to torture and abuse. And, and it was crazy. But what was funny is every 10 minutes, he kept handing me more of his handwriting and saying, okay, now what do you see? Okay, now what do you see? And mm-hmm. that was like, I was like, enough. I said, I've already looked at your handwriting. You can't change it overnight. But moving from there, I've also in the Navy, I, I got to help four people who were suicidal because oh, wow. you had mentioned the word depression and anybody can be run down. And yeah. another person will, their handwriting will, will scale up. Uh, and if you're false, not bravado, but false enthusiasm, it'll really scale high up. Um, and for people who are sad and depressed, you may notice the handwriting going down at a rightward angle. But there's also over 20 different things you would have to look at to, to qualify to say, oh, you know, would you like to you know, speak to somebody or maybe get some help? And people know instantly what you're talking about. And it's the same with people who are suicidal, um, where I got four people help in the Navy. And I asked one guy, I said, oh, have you ever talked to anyone how you feel? And he knew what I meant. And he said, no, but he'd like to. And I got him help. And, and That's awesome. so, so the benefit is great. And with no, and just to qualify, the FBI does not use handwriting analysts at all. But I would have a lot of special agents hand wow. me uh, different where they had cases they couldn't close. The interesting thing is you can. So statement analysis, uh, Mark McClish. Secret Service created a way to look at deception and writing. And what's great is you can re-change the question. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to lie. That doesn't mean they're going to share everything with you. Mm-hmm. So when you can put on a platter everybody's personality and, and behaviors, you can now get a clear picture, much like a profiler does on a person. But now you can go back and ask more pointed, better questions. And an example of this, there was a fraud case an agent was working on, and they couldn't catch this guy. One point eight million, uh, but he loved Harley's, and and he 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 also happened. I'm just saying this was him. He loved Buxomy Blonde. So what was interesting is somebody in the bureau, uh, Buxomy Blonde, uh, happened to love Harley's too, who happened to show up. And ironically, where they could not get this person to reveal more information, just a fellow lover of a Harley got him to share enough information so he could be prosecuted. And, mm-hmm. and, and so again and again, there are stories where it's just what it is. And and the benefit is for this, it's light, fun, entertaining. For people who really can use help, the reason I reference the psychologist, treatment in many states run out after eight to 12 weeks. This is the funding. So if a, if a therapist 
can see on a platter all the issues. Now mm -hmm. they can tweak and adjust treatment a lot faster and quicker. So even if funding runs out, they will be a lot further along with a person because, again, if they're suicidal or depressed, you don't want to get them on the wrong medication because right. antidepressants, depending on what it is, at, at 30 milligrams or higher, you can actually trigger uh, people to be more violent or, or tend to be more um, reactive in, in a public circumstance where they do want to harm self or another person. Right. And we had uh, a special agent who unfortunately uh, was being considered for White House duty and had an incident and, and he was able to be cleared. But basically there was an alcohol incident, uh, got stopped by a state trooper and there was nothing at the time in the FBI to mandate counseling. And there were all these things that were just there that I, I saw, but because policy didn't have that, he got to get cleared. Um, and the problem is months passed. And then sure enough, in the uh, news, uh, a 14 year old boy was killed. And oh, uh, turns out there was a person, uh, same name, who unfortunately, um, yeah, uh, took the life. And I went to my chief and I'm like, oh, my God, look at this. We, we, we have to do something because these are things that are preventable in that in rehabilitation, it's I'm not saying 50 percent effective, but of the amount of money invested to train people to do the jobs they do, yeah. why not offer the counseling and the treatments that are available because then you're trying everything. So the nice benefit or outcome was when the instruction got changed for mm -hmm. alcohol and how people, when there is an actual incident, now they're mandated by policy to get treatment. So right. no, I can't take back the lives that were lost by anybody by the fact of be it antidepressant or alcohol or drug. But the fact that policy came across my desk and I was able to input that and it got implemented at least we get to keep the agents and, and personnel who just happen to have a problem with whatever substance or alcohol. And, mm -hmm. and that's great. And, but we also make that effort that we did try everything and that's relevant. So, I mean, those are the kind of stories I can go on and on with Yeah, uh, it, it helping people. Yeah. I love that. And, and it makes it easier, but no, it's not what ever seals a case or resolves using handwriting. It's just more, humors um not the agents or law enforcement but it qualifies certain information and then i can share more pointed questions so that when they are going back to interview people what's nice is now they have better questions and again it's not that people are trying to lie they're not telling you everything but using statement analysis it's real clear to see where deception appears in a person's language be it in writing or verbal and, and it's clear you were in the military and in the military, we all use weapons. Um, but, and it's interesting, but when we take a weapon out of our holster, we now are actually calling it what it is, be it a nine millimeter, uh, M14, doesn't matter. And when you're having incidents, I'm just giving an example. There's a theft in a Walmart. There are three cashiers who could be responsible. And all you have to do is, and but you don't know who, and all you have to do is ask them to write in their own words, what happened at the crime. And what's ironic is people will give the facts, the time, money amount stolen, but the people who will have deception in their writing mm -hmm. will make up 
numbers will make up individual names. They'll give filler words. And the point is now when you get those statements, ah, you can see what a deception is. And one person will have way more deception than the other two. Now you can go back and revisit that person with new questions. And ironically, they now share the truth, uh, which you were trying to get at anyway, and you're able to move the cases along quicker. Uh, but anyway, that that it, it, I'm glad I'm able to help a lot of people. Yeah, I think it's also fascinating, you know, especially in the the line of work that you were speaking of in those high profile jobs is, you know, any job where you're carrying a weapon or you have someone else's life. Um, a lot of people will say, I'm okay, I'm okay, because they they truly feel that they are okay. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they think that they're fine. They think that nothing's bothering them because it's been hardwired into their brain that they are okay. And when you're able to utilize things like that in order to assist, to show that they're not okay, that they do need help. And that, that's fascinating. And I think, you know, I, I studied psychology only to, you know, the bachelor's level, very small level, mm -hmm. because I was fascinated. I wanted to learn more about the things that I was feeling inside, as mm -hmm. well as, you know, my family history and right. uh, mental health issues and understand just what, for lack of better words, what the hell is going on in yeah. everyone's head, right. you know? So I like understanding people's minds. So I find what you do absolutely fascinating, you know, and you're absolutely right. I, I don't, there is a lot of confidence things that I could work on. So I loved that that was so transparent in my writing, but what I, and how do you go from such a almost, I mean, to me, it's a very hard science, you know, I mean, the, the facts are there to writing fiction i mean how does that translate well I'll, I'll tell you it's funny much like you uh a lot of us go through school and until somebody says something um we don't know uh where we're at because you know teacher says write this assignment you do it and you don't usually get feedback of the pass fail a b c d f ironically in sixth grade I was a substitute teacher, and the assignment was write a scary Halloween story. Okay. and, and see, oh, see? Okay. I was too, and it was a thunderstorm. Please don't tell me yours was a thunderstorm. No, actually, this okay. is the amazing thing. I don't remember the story details. I only remember the teacher coming over to me to stop and tell me how the story made her feel. And she said, this is really good. You should publish it. But the fact that she, even though I don't remember the story details, I never will forget how that story made her feel and the power of storytelling. And that was the first taste on the writer's journey because then I was a camp counselor at a sleepaway camp and I had seven to 10 year old boys. And, you know, they 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 get a hold of sugar. They stay up all night. I <laughs> want them to go to bed. So I would tell them bedtime stories, be it ghost stories or anything else. And the thing that always was funny uh, were the adults. These are who were the other camp counselors and above from 17 and to <clears throat> even the 40s and 50s. And I would have the adults come over and say, did that really happen? <laughs> and I was like, what, the me slaying the dragon to save the <laughs> camp? Yeah, sure, that really happened. And <laughs> but But it was interesting that that power of storytelling to – convince and convey to people 
wow. And, and that's going to my next book. Cause this wasn't, I'll get to the fiction book in a second. Cause it's mm -hmm. all a journey, but in high school, in English class, I transferred into a school in the middle of the semester. The teacher was English teacher. He was really mad at the class for doing horrible on a test last week. And he's like, okay, right. All of you, you, you studied Shakespeare. Um, you, you studied Macbeth last year. I need a story on uh, what Lady Macbeth did wrong. Uh, and I need and I need that before class goes and you better impress me. And then he sat down and opened the New York Times and started to read. And A, I up to that point never read anything by Shakespeare in school. It wasn't mandated. I didn't know Macbeth. I leaned over to the person to my left and I said, uh, what is the story about Macbeth? And, <laughs> and who's Lady Macbeth and how did it feel? Yeah. And they said, Oh, and it's not a spoiler if you know you're you're worried about the Shakespeare. Basically, uh, the Lady Macbeth convinces Macbeth to kill the king uh, so he would become king. And then she felt really guilty about it and took her own life. Mm -hmm. And then the next class, the teacher said, oh, I have two students. Uh, all of you did okay. You know your Shakespeare. But two students really know their Shakespeare. And they're going to come up to read their stories. So the first guy went and he was the prosecutor prosecuting Lady Macbeth. And I was like, wow, that's really good and brilliant. And I, I was, and then he called my name. And I was like, oh no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going up. Uh, I'm embarrassed. And he goes, you'll fail. I'm like, fine. So I went up and read it and I didn't know any better, but I was her psychoanalyst at the Rikers Island Correction Prison Facility. And I was attempting to get her through her process to resolve everything. And in the end, she killed herself. And at her funeral, I was wondering, did any of my therapy help? And did she find peace? And the the, the teacher was like, and this is the only paper I've given an A plus to because he really knows his Shakespeare. And I was just happy to pass. But, but that was the next taste to be thrown into stuff that, you know, you, you don't have a lot of facts. So it is possible to turn what you, you want into stories, but that leads to my next book in, in the military, Intel Analyst, and, and I wrote a lot of reports. And even in my job, I write a lot of reports per day, but that's for nonfiction. That, that's white papers and very boring unless yeah. you're interested in those topics. But I had this story, much like you and, and many people out there. I grew up on um, the bedtime stories, the myths, and epic fantasy adventures and I also grew up from my grandma with Slavic mythology and tales of Baba Yaga. So with The Devil Pulls the Strings, I had to write a story to honor the hero's journey, which for those that don't know, a hero's journey is just somebody in their everyday world has it flipped upside down and then they have to do some big quest, save their town, the city, the world, and they're forever changed after. And I wanted to honor the hero's journey, and also infused Slavic mythology and the many faces of Baba Yaga, the mother of all witches, because when you understand about Hansel and Gretel, most of us know that story. Ooh, kids lost in the woods, finds a house made of candy, and the woman tried, the witch tries to eat you. Well, that's also one of the Baba Yaga stories. And in many cultures, there are many stories of babushkas, the old village womans, or... Uh, with Baba Yaga, she's in many cultures, but the most important thing, she's not just a two-dimensional character found 
in literature, in video games and stories, they leave her two-dimensional in movies. And she's more than that. She's the, yes, antagonist. She's the mentor, the helper. Um, yes, mm -hmm. after the story's done, she may even eat the hero. But but she's, <laughs> she's a supernatural force and she's so much more than what's portrayed. So I wanted to infuse all the many aspects of her. So to do all that, and the great part is, Many of the readers who've, who've reviewed the book or read and posted their comments, they've said that, that, wow, they really see this one person who happens to be um, Slavic. They were happy to see the characters called Domovoy. These are like house elves or brownies that oh. are in, in the book. I just embellish them and go far beyond. These characters guard the uh, good secret society uh, in, the, in the book, the, the treasures, and when you take anything from their vaults or caverns, they turn into the critters from uh, critters and they get all uh, poof out and have fangs and teeth and come after you. And they're similar to piranha, except with piranha, piranha leave bones, the domovoi do not. And getting back to this, the whole thing with the book, I also love music. I also love time travel. I also love uh, all the fantasy epic stories, but in here, the one big thing about The Devil Pulls the Strings, that's the title. It's the question came to me about a rumor about Niccolo Paganini, born in 1782, recognized as one of the greatest violinists, forever changed violin technique. Well, there's a rumor that his mother gave Paganini's soul to the devil so he'd be the world's greatest violinist. Mm. Imagine if that rumor were true then you would be immersed in The Devil Pulls the Strings, where time travel, twisted history, secret societies, Paganini's music, and one haunted hero collide. So the violin is my favorite classical instrument. Oh, yes. So, yay. <laughs> like, like when you put on classical music, I only look, a lot of people look for the piano. I look for the violins. Right. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> well, here, here, here's the great thing. I see things in my head and the main character, the protagonist, Boone Daniels, also music and food is his life. But with Niccolo Paganini in the story, his music is being used by different people and his music is being used to summon the devil. And unfortunately, mm. New York City can be destroyed in the process. Um, so it's a whole bunch of stuff. But taking Niccolo Paganini's three biggest pieces. Imagine if you combine them and they formed a hidden secret sonata used to summon the devil. So with the audio book, I had uh I had world-class violinist um get out. I can't yeah and oh okay get out okay no no I, like <laughs> with, yes so I had a I was like get out do you have music in the audio book really I have yeah I had Oleg I can't pronounce his last name he's gonna kill me I had a world-class violinist make the the violin sounds uh, the Paganini snippets of his music because uh, there's six songs, but there are three uh, songs that you hear. And then I had him create the secret sonata. His wife plays piano. So she accompanied him. And then because Paganini also was a guitarist and Boone Daniels plays electric guitar, bass um, and acoustic. I had a, a guitarist also make the guitar versions of the songs. So when you're hearing the audio book, you hear these pieces. Now, the best thing I love about this, because I don't, so Boone Daniels, when he was six, he gets kicked in the head by a horse and it triggers in him having a memory, which is you just can memorize a yeah. whole bunch of facts. 
And he also gets synthesia, which synthesia simply means when you hear a sound, you may see colors or get taste yeah. or sensations. Well, for Boone, yes, but it's a little warped in that he can play any song he hears once. And he also re-experiences whatever the artist who made the song goes through. So in the course of the story where he's hearing a Tom Petty song, he's flicking his hands. He's getting a taste of Okaji lemon lime in his mouth. And he's getting a taste of a grave dirt because Tom Petty was a grave digger before he was a musician. He loved yeah. Okaji uh, lime, lemon lime, excuse me. There are all these things that are infused. So he doesn't know why he's experiencing all these things. He just thinks this is the way it is, but he goes through that. And, and for him to qualify, to bring back the story. So really this is a story that it, 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 it takes place in uh, Wentzville, Missouri, New York City, and 1813 Genoa, Italy. Wentzville, Missouri? Yep. Well, you see, next to Wentzville, Missouri, is the St. Louis Renaissance Festival. I know. My sister's in Wentzville. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, then she will. I didn't know that, but that is cool. And so what's really cool. <laughs> I would have to tell her she has to read this book. It, <laughs> well, it, it's it's more centered the the Ren Fair, but the point is, yeah. um, you know, Boone when he was six, his parents got attacked by an evil spirit Wendigo, and his parents disappeared. So poor Boone, you know, he has debilitating panic attacks because of that attack. Mm -hmm. And then this is the worst part: he almost accidentally kills his friend during a joust. And so for Boone Daniels, yeah, it's it's he he not. Wow, a lot of stuff happens to this poor guy. He's only 22. But in Wentzville, there's not a lot of jobs or work. And that some people invariably find work at the Renaissance Festival, which mm -hmm. the St. Louis Renaissance Festival is the only French-speaking Renaissance Festival in America. And this is all significant because all these things, Boone, he finds different work, of course, at the Ren Fair and eventually becomes a knight, uh, jousting. And it's relevant because at the joust, you know, it's been four years. He's been training. He's ready. His best friend, Flynn Michaels, he's going he's gonna to break his record. He's going to get the queen's favor. And during the joust, somebody blows an air horn. <laughs> and Flynn Michaels, is, he, can't, he can't stop. And he's thrown onto uh, Boone Daniels' lance. And, and, you know, in the hospital, he's like, Flynn's telling to Boone, listen, you know the band's set. You got to take my gig this weekend because I'm not going anywhere. And and so Boone, you know, he has to keep a promise. But he's also one thing about the debilitating mm. panic attacks, the Wendigo still stalking him. Mm. So whenever he has a dream, like he's sleeping or in a dark place, the Wendigo appears. So he has scars and everything. So he's been dealing with that since the age of six. So he doesn't know if when he goes to New York, the Wendigo is going to follow him. But when he goes there, he's given a name and a number. Say, here is the contact, Professor Stone. And when he steps out of the cab, bumps into a girl carrying a violin. A music sheet falls from above. He catches it, has the uh, strained on it by Paganini. And then all of a sudden, there's a big commotion. And then, oh, my goodness, uh, body, the contact falls in front of them on the pavement. Then men with guns show up shouting something about the music and, and they get in the cab and escape. And then it becomes a wild ride through time for Boone to find this 
cursed music that's going to be used to summon the devil to stop a summering ceremony. And he gets embroiled in a secret society war that's centuries old. Uh, and it just, it, it goes from there. So you have to Golly. read it to really go on, but it's. There's so many corners to this book. I was yeah. just, I'm sitting here like I'm listening to the audiobook. Did you see me? Like, <laughs> I want to play back and I'm like, did I really have my mouth open during an interview? No, no, a few seconds. No, you're good. But, but that so was funny. That was, did you use like, so obviously you have an extensive background in psychology and handwriting. I mean, an extensive background in a lot of things that you do. Did you use that background when writing this book? Did you use that knowledge when, when writing your characters and stuff? Or were these characters something that came to you and just said, write me and, and like my, my characters and some other authors' characters, they just come to us in our head and they say, write me right now. And you say, okay, I'm at your mercy. It started with the question about what if the rumor was true, if Niccolo Paganini's mother gave the soul, the Paganini to the devil, so he'd be the world's greatest violinist. And then okay. from there I said, okay, I need a protagonist. Um, and, for doing characters, it's important to know that anyone can do this. If you create the character first and break out a name, I like to look at the backgrounds of characters to look where their family came in the world. And then for names, I like to look what's relevant. The character Boone is forever having to give a promise or get a promise in this story. Hence the name Boone is perfect for somebody who has to give or get a promise, just applicable. Um, and his parents are college professors, um, but there's also relevance I wanted to look beyond. So for creating the characters, yeah, building a character profile is very important, but you have to build out their strengths and weaknesses. And it's so important to do the weaknesses. So I wanted to look at Boone and say, okay, what hasn't been covered? And debilitating panic attacks many people in the world that deal with stressful circumstances may be impacted and, and get an increase in stress in their body to actually have a panic attack. Mm -hmm. So in it, it's just coincidental that the love interest he meets happened to have a nanny that had panic attacks. So she knows how to do a breathing technique. And, and when there's a panic attack, cause they're being chased by the men uh, that are trying to get the music and he's having this attack and he's worried about the Wendigo is going to appear because it always does. Mm -hmm. um, she calms him down and the Wendigo doesn't appear. But that breathing technique is actually something anybody going through panic attacks to do to just doing counting of one, two, three, breathe in, breathe out, four, five, six, breathe in, breathe out. And having things like that are relevant and significant. And then the other things for the characters, all that, I did that with every character. I looked at for the names, what was relevant to where they're from in the world. And then I, I build out to what would their issues be. Safara Anjou, she's the love interest. Well, she's a student at NYU. She's a prolific violinist. And in the story, she plays at an annual Paganini violin competition. And But it's taken years because to master one of Paganini's greatest pieces, uh, Cantabelle, uh, no, I've got the wrong piece. But for some of Paganini's pieces, it may take 12 years to master before you can play some of his pieces. Because again, he had Malfour syndrome, at least repted to. And that 
increased his appendages, fingers, and he was very flexible. So he could reach parts of the violin that other people couldn't in his day. So he wrote very technical, complex pieces to show off his skills. Uh, and in the comp, there is an actual annual Paganini competition um, in Italy, Genoa, Italy, where he's from, or Genoa, mm -hmm. Italy, excuse me. And it's great to get these young violinists and they get to play on one of Paganini's violins mm -hmm. after, which is awesome. So that I infuse, and it happens to be NYU, um, no other reason than it's central in New York, and she's a student there. And everything just comes full circle, but to get that music for people to hear. And that was the nicest thing that people who were reading the book, they were telling me they actually stopped to find the music pieces of the artist I was referencing so they could hear while they were reading. And they really appreciated that. So that's amazing because that I didn't even expect anyone would do. But getting back, I'm I'm background. Your doggies want to participate. But the cool part is I do heavy research and nobody has to do that. But I actually I'm from New York, but I actually went to New York. So I could travel everywhere the protagonist went so I could see what they see when I step out of the cab. So one cool thing for authors to do when you can get to places you're going to write about, by all means, go visit these places so you can experience the sights, the sounds, the smells, the taste, the touch, everything. And then you can infuse what you're experiencing. Because in the book, when I got out of the cab where Boone would be meeting his contact. There was a Japanese restaurant on the corner. And when I got out, there was a very heavy perfume smell of vomit and pizza and dog poo. And I was like, whoa. And there were flowers, but the flowers could not mask the scent. And I'm thinking, here's a city that never sleeps. And they forgot to pay for their trash to get taken out. And and But to get things like that, I wouldn't have been able to infuse that in the book so for my research, it's the same thing with characters. I do that research to come up with their names. Because really, if you have a character and you know what their background is, you can do a search on their family history. And then you can say, okay, person's Russian. What are Russian names? Oh, they're English. What are English names for males or females? And now you can build out a yeah. first name, a middle name, a last name. And you can go one step further. If you want to infuse personality traits, weaknesses, or anything else, you could find meanings of the names for symbology. And yeah. I do that with all the characters. I have a professor Wickhamby. Wickhamby's not a real name. I made it up. But it's really cool for this. Um, th there's a, a movie about um, a music movie, and I forget. But if you know the Spider-Man movies that are out, the character plays Jonah Jameson, who bald head, and he's a brilliant actor. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. But he plays a music professor uh, and, and oh my. I'm horrible with names. You cannot rely on me. <laughs> I know. I but in it, this guy is a fanatical about music and he throws a symbol when the protagonist in that movie goes in uh, because the character laughs and it's a phenomenal scene. But so Professor Wickhamby is a music professor at NYU who's the same fanatical and he's looking for somebody who can play Paganini music the best. And so he's that fanatical and it, having characters like that in the story, you know, he's an elitist European and, and just having those characters infused and going back to Boone who grows up in a trailer park when his parents died, the 
one his, his aunt owns a trailer park in Wentzville, Missouri. So he goes and lives and grows up there and becomes a handyman at the trailer park, invariably becomes friends with Flynn Michael at the Ren Fair. All those things help later yeah. on. He also loves food. So I have scenes where he burps and he puts out an ogre belch that the cookie monster would be proud of. <laughs> and he's doing that with Wickhamby, who's an elitist European, and yeah. Sapphire, who's trying to tell him about a death that occurred in the story. And they have little finger foods and little cookies and cakes. And Boone's just, um, 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 he can't stop. And even Wickhamby's like pulling the plate away from him, like, you know, and, and so scenes like that to show, not tell, but show, were all relevant and important. So of all the research, I, it took 10 months to write the draft, but then I did two and a half years of research before even writing the draft. And then over, it took five years collectively of the research never stopped because I had to go interview people who do jousting to find out things that you experience and accidents for bumps and bruises. And then I had to just talk to different people in different industries because I also have not just time travel, but I also have people traveling through a quantum tunnel and, and when wormholes and there's nothing in literature and in fiction that gives a better description. Most is just telling you person entered a wormhole and they appeared on the other side. Yeah. They so I had to about the details in between. So what you physically experience, no, I have not been through a wormhole or a quantum tunnel, but I had to postulate based on all the research, say, well, if you were going at a high speed rate to go through this, yeah. this is what you would experience. So my my, I love my line editor, line by line editor, Susan Purvis. She cut over 42,000 words from this book, and but she made everything nice, super tight and, and sparkle and shine. And for we had to revise the chapter talking about going through a wormhole and a tunnel four times before, before we both were like, yes, this feels right. This is what somebody should experience when going through a wormhole or a quantum tunnel. And it funny enough takes place in a taxi cab. So it, yeah, it, it just, it, it <laughs> in really, New York, right? in New York, the cabs, they're amazing. Um, I want to so, go to New York just to time travel. So down, I'll do it. <laughs> unfortunately it may happen, but uh, you know, um, for the book, it definitely happens, but moving from there <clears throat> with all that re research, what's relevant is you, the reader, when you read something that you know is not the fact or the truth of whatever the topic's being talked about. Now, Regency novels that, oh my goodness, the historical novels that are not romance, but they really capture a moment in time in London or different periods, but Regency fiction. They, I met Regency authors and they're so brilliant in the descriptions for emotion and romance writers are so spot on in how they trigger emotions. Um to get capture that type of detail with facts. That's why I had to go to New York, even though I'm a New Yorker and I dragged my poor wife to all these locations. So just because I'm like, well, I, I have to go see what it's like on these steps here. And people who read, who are from New York or lived there, they're like, Oh my God, it was like, I was back there again. And I knew these places. And, and so that's why it's so important for writers. If they are going to write books Go back to places you've been or go to visit. Now, Genoa, Italy, no, I've never been. And I hired somebody to do a tour to go to restaurants and other places. I didn't use any of, of the information, but it was the best I could do in the pandemic. 
uh, and then getting to where it is today, then it was, you know, the book went with a line-by-line editor who really, I love her, but I hate her because she cut so many words, but you need to cut, Stephen King calls, cut your darlings. And that's, you love your words and you love what you've written, but it doesn't help move the story forward. So whatever you write, it has to move the story forward, whether it, it's tight, quick, or it's long and you're going into detail about the fluff that many readers love. But the point is, yeah, you may have to cut your darlings. And, and I did that. And, and so getting to where it is now, I appreciate that so many people who have read it do love it and why it's gotten the awards and recognition. So I appreciate that beyond anything. And of the people, yes, I've, I've actually, I've gotten uh, two out of the 50 or some odd reviews, I've actually gotten two negatives which made me laugh. And no, no, it's fine because you need everybody because no, here's the best part of books. You don't have to write a book for everybody. You write a book in the genre and it's for a specific audience. And it may branch out to other people who like other genres, but the point is, no, just stick to what you know, stay in a genre, stay in that lane. And, and it, it makes such an incredible difference. But for the people I like the people that it wasn't their genre, but they said, wow, this kept me interested in staying. But the one thing, now this book is also a bromance because Boone has to keep a promise to his best friend, Flynn Michaels. One negative comment was, oh, there are no LGBT plus characters in the book. And it's the story's taking place over three days. And New York City could be destroyed if, if Boone doesn't get involved and stop it. So it was a legitimate question or or criticism. And I was like, well, where can I even put in this bromance characters? And there's just no time in the three-day thing. And I said, you know, I can write another story later. And I'm okay with that criticism because that's not what the book is about. The other yeah. criticism, and my wife had it too, was because it's so tight and edited, um, and it's just literally a high-speed wild ride. Um, it doesn't stop for the fluff. And some people love the fluff, but you know what? If you love movies, if you like things like The Librarians and The Magicians, those are two series. Uh, a lot of things. Librarians, Noah Wiley started it. Bob Newhart was in it. And that's a, a secret society that, that secures uh, magical objects and keeps them from bad uh, secret society members. So that is just like that. And the magicians are individuals that have all kinds of skills in magic, adept. And that's what happens in this story. So, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that the people who like and love it, like it and love it for the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, and even the banter, people comment on the banter between Boone and the love interest, uh, Safra Anjou. And I mean, then even Stephen King gets bad reviews and he's Stephen King. I mean, Nora Roberts gets bad reviews and she's Nora Roberts. I oh, mean, the I best know. in each genre gets bad reviews. That's the thing is no one's going to like everything. And the thing is you write a book for the people that are going to enjoy the book. And that's the best part about it. But your book sounds absolutely fascinating. The twists and turns. And I mean, I don't, I'm not a fluff person. If it takes you five to 10 pages to write one scene, to write one literally him or him or her walking from the computer to the door, and that took 10 pages. 
I'm probably not going to read another 10 pages and then walking from the door to the bathroom. Like I'm done at that point, you know, like I want to see the progression. I've got to be able to see it going. So think that's, that's what great editors are for. And as writers, I think what we do is like, we want to put everything, thing in there yeah. and that's what the wonderful editors are for even though we have the love-hate relationship these are the other secrets because we we are we come on the hour but a scene a book a chapter is only as long as it has to be whether yeah. it's one word or goodness gracious you can write a lot um mm -hmm. the point is a scene chapter book the story is only as long as it has to be. A scene in a chapter is long enough to move the story forward where it has to go. Uh, mm -hmm. And really, that's it. And yes, you can always revise and rewrite and relaunch again. But for the story itself, after you've done your draft and you can't figure out what else to do, you just start bringing in editors. Start bringing in people who can have a fresh set of eyes and to break out. And, and you could go through all the different type of editors, developmental, line by line. Um, and they're all relevant and have their place. Developmental editors, hey, here are the plot holes. Here's where weaknesses. Here's where you have to switch things around. And here's what, what where you need to improve your story. You know, and that's great when you're a new author. After you get, you know, uh, two to five books in you, you, you've now established what would be your author's voice. And maybe you don't need that type of assistance anymore. Now, line-by-line line editors are phenomenal, just like mine, Susan Purvis, where they actually look at the whole, the sentence, and they look at the strength, and they look, okay, you can take this word out, this word, you can move this stuff around. Hey, this chapter, you mentioned this, and you can't repeat it here. You got to tweak these things. Oh, you might need an internal dialogue here. You might need a visceral reaction here. And then you revise. And then through that course, the draft, that's the easiest part of your writing. <laughs> and it's an ang revision that the real work comes in, but your best writing comes out. And when you get that assistance from someone else, and for those people that maybe you go, oh, I can't afford an editor. I'm in a mindset, how can you afford not to use an editor? But for those folks who are budget conscious, yeah. you can form writing groups. You can find um, beta readers. There are many places where you can access other writers and you simply swap. And, and you share and you hopefully find writers who are better than you because then they raise your skill level up. And that's getting back to Margie Lawson, who I dedicated The Devil Pulls the Strings to because she amped up my writing. She's a psychologist and she, she created an edit system to show emotions in writing. And mm. I, in one of her immersion classes where you've taken a bunch of her classes and now you're in a group, she does them all online now, but it was all... Regency and historical fiction authors, and they were all best selling authors and had three or more books. And I hadn't written anything yet. And listening to their stories, it was very humbling to be in that room. And the best part in that room, because one woman, she was going to be on her 25th book that year. And and so it was oh, very humbling yeah. to be like the only guy in the room. And <laughs> but the best part is when we were creating lines to convey emotion. Um, I, I'm happily to say that I got the whole room of ladies to all go, ooh. <laughs> but because you don't know, and Margie would, would let you know, oh, this is New York Times quality writing when you did really good. And but even the ladies there, and Margie is a sweet old soul, Margie Lawson, and mm. she just really 
brings the strength out of a, a, a author. So that's why, and to have everybody there, these are even best-selling authors who are like all hoping Margie, you know, they get the time with Margie to review their stuff. And it's all the same. So no matter where you are in your author's journey, you can always learn something else because yeah. it never stops. And that's why I dedicated the book to her because she, wow. And when you get the fresh writing and all fresh writing is, we all know what cliches are. We've all said the same thing about mm -hmm. something. Um, uh, and, and I'm sorry, I'm not giving a better example of a cliche. Hit the head on the nail. That's a cliche. When you yeah. write fresh is you're simply taking a different way to say that same hit the head on the nail. So Margie shares and shows you how to do that in your own voice. So then when you write things, it, it's, it, it just comes out more naturally flowing. So, so that's why I ever give her props and, and always tell people, Oh, when you want to improve your writing, go find her. Um, and she's online. And, but the other things to segue from that, the second book I wrote, I, I wanted to just talk about to just capture two things that are relevant. The happiness code, Ray Bram, best-selling author invited me to co-author the book with other authors, the happiness code, because today's day and age, who doesn't need a little more happiness? And what's significant about this is all the authors share their personal happiness hacks with you. Mm. And, and these are things that just you can instantly do, incorporate in your own life. So I was touched and blown away reading the other authors' uh, happiness hacks and things they do to find happiness because it's all different for everybody. What makes you happy doesn't necessarily make me happy. But when you read all these authors' ways of to find their happiness, whatever resonates with you, you can incorporate into your own life. And that's relevant. Buddha, I'm going to destroy his quote, but he said, happiness is a choice and you have yeah. to make that choice. And when you do things change in your life, and that's my first happiness act to make. So I steal from Buddha, but make the choice to be happy. And the next happiness hack, which is very important is, we all say negative things on a daily basis about ourselves. I'm too tall. I'm too short. I'm too skinny. I'm too fat. I'm too whatever. But we word things in a negative. And here's an exercise I want you to try. And everybody listening can do this too, is we're going to use two phrases. But the first one is I want you to ask a question. And the question is this. You can think it or say it out loud. But the question is, ask yourself, why am I happy? So ask that question if you would now, CJ. You want me to? Yes, I do. Just say, why am I happy? Yeah, but ask it and ask the question. Why am I happy? Now, here's a cool thing, because the viewers can see this. The this edges of your mouth started to curve up. And I'll okay. tell you why this is. Your subconscious does not care what the information you feed it. It's garbage in, garbage out, but the subconscious will prove to you whatever statement you make. So where we say, I'm too short, I'm poor, I'm too tall, I'm too skinny, I'm too fat, your subconscious goes, you know what? I'm going to prove to you you're right. But when you now take questions you're framing in a positive way, why am I happy? Your subconscious goes, you know what? I'm going to prove to you why you're happy. Now, the best part is it costs nothing. It's fat-free. And you can say this when you wake up, you go to bed. And, and the cool part is when you just need a little shot in your arm for just to, hey, you can say that phrase. The other phrase, and I want you to say this out loud, many people don't say enough the phrase, I am enough. Mm. 
And many people don't hear that from other people. But when you say the word, I am enough, and you may today not believe those words, but here's the great part going back to referencing the talking about behaviors, like I referenced, you can write on your mirror, you can write by your bed. And when you wake up and go to bed, when you wake up, you can see these words and say them and think them. When you go to bed, right before you go to bed, you can see these words, say them, think them. And if you go to the bathroom or a place you always happen to go and have that word there, whether you say it or think it, it's there, your subconscious saw it. And it will start to validate. And again, after 27 to 30 days, your, your behavior, it's now becoming a permanent habit. And other people around you are noticing the changes that are happening. And in one contest I wanted to share, the Firebird Award uh, radio station, they take all the entry fees and everything, and they have pillows and blankets for shelters for women and children created, and they put some empowering messages on there. And I asked for them to put the empowering message, I am enough, and why am I happy? And the people said they would. And, and because many people just don't know always where they're at in their life. Uh, and to be able to get something that can start you on the path and change your perspective is so profound. And even though those are two little statements, why am I happy and I am enough? Wow. For, for the people that need to hear it most, be it yourself or someone else, it's just a wow factor. So there's so much more, but that's why the happiness hack, happiness code became a bestseller because, uh, you know, everybody can benefit from those instant things that you can incorporate into your, your own life that resonate with you. And, and just, wow. I mean, again and again, and I can keep going on, but for all of that, because we're also past the hour, which went by <laughs> so quick. You're yeah. So but when you started saying that phrase, I am enough, it may seem like three small words, but to so many people, that phrase is the most powerful phrase in the universe. Yeah. I mean, it it hits so freaking hard. Yeah. I mean, just for them to look in the mirror and say it out loud will break them down to their knees for them to even feel an ounce of it. So, yeah. So when you started saying that, I was like, I don't even care what time it is because that somebody needs to hear that tonight. Somebody needs to hear that. that. And so with the whole range of all the things, for those writers out there, you're going to find the books you want to write. Everybody has stories in them. Anybody can write a book, but not everybody can write a book. But what's significant for those people that are saying, I want to write a book. Okay, for a journey to start is you have genres you like and love. And those genres that you like and love most, read the top 25 best-selling books. You can even rewrite them. But just reading them puts you in the language and the mindset and the format and framing of that genre. Now here's the best part that nobody can take away that only you as the writer can do. You can ask the questions, you know, I like and love this genre. I've never seen this type of story before, but I would really like and love to see this type of story. You've now gotten your foundation in a genre that people are already reading. And if you like and love a story that you've never seen, but would like to see now 
you can write that story and it'll be in your own voice. Because some people hear, oh, I'm selling out. No, no, no. You have to write stories people want to read if you want to share your stories with the world. Because once you define your your audiences, are you writing for yourself? Are you writing for a targeted group or are you writing for a genre? If you're writing for yourself, it doesn't matter what you write. You're the only person who cares and matters. If you're writing for a target group, hey, you're just tweaking everything for that group or person that you're writing for. It's only relevant to them. That's great. But now when you're writing to a genre, hey, you got to be genre specific. And yes, there are some people who hate to write romances, but they're really good at writing it or they have a knack for children's books, whatever. But the point is, it's okay to write in different genres. I do. But what's relevant is that's a way to start and asking those questions. I asked a question about Niccolo Paganini and that, oh my goodness, what it evolved to. Yeah. I couldn't have imagined. And the story changed. And I, I will share when I wrote the story where the protagonist was meeting the girl at first and, and the body falls splat in front of them. That's where I, I had started the book originally, but then mm-hmm. David from the book doctors, he, he's an amazing best-selling author and he's having one of his books turn into a series. He says, Oh, you got to show the joust. I'm like, <laughs> Fine. So I wrote that whole scene where they have the joust and then the bromance and then got to go travel and I never would have written that scene if David from the book doctors hadn't have said that. But then that chapter's done now. I'm happy. I'm like, yes. And then Bonnie Solomon, she was the producer on Shrek and 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 uh, Chronicles of Narnia and the city members. And she's like, oh, you got to show the relationship between the secret society <laughs> before the joust. I'm like, I'm like, okay, fine. You're like, you're like I got to stop talking to my friends. <laughs> so, and, 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 and so... That's the other reason for networking and working with other writers and working mm-hmm. with other editors, because you won't know where you will be inspired to take your stories because, and that getting back to the characters, when you build all the weaknesses and strengths beforehand, now in your chapters and scenes, because we touched upon that, if you have three bullet points in a scene or chapter and you've grounded the readers to say, okay, here's where it's happening this is be a time of day, time of night, inside, outside. You then have those points that you want the story to progress. As long as you've identified the character strengths and weaknesses, as you write that scene, the story will unfold through their voices where you'll be writing stuff, stuff you would never have personally written as the author, but because you frame the character with their weaknesses and strengths, idiosyncrasies, likes, dislikes, all of a sudden, as you're writing, things will come out because you know the points you want to hit in your story. But now the characters, they may do total opposite stuff you would never do. And it's phenomenal. And then if you approach each scene and chapter and say, okay, here's the perspective of the protagonist. Here's the perspective of this person, this character, and rewrite the scene from their perspectives, then you can go with ever happens to be the strongest perspective. Now, mm-hmm. in this book, it's a first point perspective from Boone Daniels. So everything that unfolds, the reader's experiencing it, he's experiencing it, and that's relevant only because that's how I wanted to have the story. But you don't have to do that, but it's just important in those scenes and chapters 
to have that. And then as the story unfolds, goodness gracious, eventually you do get to an ending um, <laughs> and, and it may change from how you started. Right. And so I, I couldn't have done this without Margie Lawson. I couldn't have run. Derek Murphy was my developmental editor who said, oh, you got to change this, this, this. These are plot holes. Susan Purvis. Oh, my goodness gracious. Lover cut 42,000 plus words. The artist there, the cover art done by Peter Johnston. He is a prolific um, uh, artist from Scotland and England. And he, when you go to my website, jwzarek.com, you can see some, a sampling of many of the art that he's created. But I wanted to have, mm, while I was writing, I wanted to have ways the characters looked. <clears throat> so I could flesh them out, excuse me, and, and keep motivating me. So for writers, another tip is you can find pictures and images online for free, but you can also very inexpensively find artists to create images of places, locations, or characters. And then as you're writing, you can have them near you to access, to keep you on point and, and continue to re-inspire you as you go on. And it's all those little things that Everybody I met always gave me more tips and trips and ticks and everything and just yeah. So it's it's amazing. Um. So, but we yeah, should so. have you give like a whole lecture. You need to be mentoring authors. Like that's your whole new thing now. Is when I, when I retire, I got ten months and then I can leave federal service and then you know I just want to write full time, do volunteer work to beautify senior citizen centers. Um, shelters for men and for women and children and orphanages because i doing that when i was in the military i loved doing that when we'd pull into ports we'd get to do volunteer work with the the chaplain on the ship we'd get with the churches and do all that so i'm happy to write full-time and do that and help other authors because like you you're phenomenal because you help other authors bring their voices to life with how everything you can bring share and show because you've written 20 books and and the fact that you help authors oh my goodness that helps get their stories out to the world so yeah i I'd, I'd love to do that um but you know what i i am it, it's I'm, I'm glad like things like this i'm so glad i got to meet you and talk to you this is wow this has been phenomenal this has been a great conversation. I mean, I've learned so much. I, you know, when I started writing, you know, I couldn't get on a platform to talk to anyone, to learn from anyone. So I said, well, I want to create a platform where I can talk to other authors. And I've learned so much because I've been able to talk to people who are willing to share their stories. And I'm, I'm so completely blessed to be able to talk to people like you, the phenomenal. I mean, we've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes. I've learned so much. I've got, I've got written character profiles, strength and weaknesses. I mean, there's, you know, there's things that, I never thought of before because when I started writing, you said you wrote, you write for yourself, you write for uh, target uh, audience, target audience, or you write for a genre. And I was writing for myself, all those 20 books, I was writing for myself because it was a mental health journey for me to be able to finally do something for myself. So, but now next year I'm going back, I'm redefining those books because I, I want to get them out there and I want people to see the writing because I believe in what I do. But in the beginning it was just for me. So I wasn't 
marketing them because I knew that I still needed to learn and all that other stuff. But now that I'm learning, I took four years to learn all of it. So I think it's absolutely phenomenal what you do. And, and you, you, the first you learned first, and then you wrote this book that bam, you know, won these awards and everything. And now you're sharing that knowledge with fellow authors. And I think it's great. Um, but I do have to go feed my dogs, but I do want to know what upcoming projects do you have? Because all I want to do is go listen to the audiobook to listen to those violins. I'm telling you that much right now. <laughs> so thank you very much. And you know, I'll, after offline, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of you with that. But so the upcoming projects, uh, best-selling author Adam Hogue invited me to co-author his next book, uh, from authors to authors, sharing stories, experiences, um, wow. um, cautionary tales, step-by-step instructions. So he doesn't have, it's to be determined, but it's still, that was an honor because he has like so 300 cool. million books where well, he's written a hundred books, but he has 300 or 3 million books. I'm sorry, out there that have sold. So, wow. And then best-selling author, Brian Wright invited me to co-author his next book, the best lessons I learned from dad. And for me, my best lessons I learned were with a football helmet and a pair of earmuffs. And and his book, Brian said his book, he wants to launch it in November. Um, Now for my own writing, um, I'm happy. I'm very excited about their books to help them. My own books, the next book in the archivist series. And funny enough, I I have a kid's book. I'm, I'm also writing, um, what is it? Uh, Bella Bailey Brown loves butterflies. So she goes on a journey with her grandmother, Yetta, who's a retired uh, professional uh, collector of moths and butterflies. And they go to the different countries to talk about the significance of the butterflies in, in the world for colors and everything. And even, you know, she asked, I'm sorry, I got to say, because it made me laugh when I read it. A question a kid asked was, do butterflies fart? And and so, <laughs> it, so it, it, it's uh, mud puddle uh, well now I'm forgetting but yes they expel water as their process but to have that in the kids book is yes. just and and have all those facts and and things it's just people who love butterflies and I don't know why I'm writing it but that's so I have a lot on my yes. plate and you can go to jwzarek.com to go to the website um, see the art from Peter Johnston uh, you can find me online if you Facebook groups um, and if you search here yeah, all the books are available, Amazon, uh, Audible, uh, and it just, Kurt Bonham, he's the narrator for the audiobook, and that guy is 30 voices, he's award-winning, he's done everything, and he really lent to this project and book, and, and the music from the, the artist, so yeah, it's just, uh, it's been a labor of love for this third book, but for the other things. And I'm happy to keep writing and helping any authors I can, because really everybody has a story to tell. Yeah. But again, look at what you want to share and show for you authors out there or writers, and really look at the top 25 genres you like and love most. Read those books to get the framing and the language, and then think of all those stories you that you just don't see that you would like or love to see. And then you know what? You now have a frame to write your stories and then find writer groups, find um, beta readers um, and, and as you, and the editors, and you'd be surprised how affordable the process can be. You, you can spend a lot of money, but you don't have to. Yeah. And that's significant. And yes, you can read into a microphone, read your story and then 
turn that and publish that on Amazon in 24 hours. I'm not saying that's the best way to release a story, but from that to going through a process to edit, revise, eventually to publish where you're polished and published ready, you'll know. And, and even after just forgive yourself that even a published book can have mistakes. And even with copy editor, even with line by line editor, even with a proofreader, and all the people are very good and great and will help strengthen your work. But just know, just be out there and then let that be a stepping stone to the next books you write and the next stories. And and it is amazing when you can touch a person with your stories and change them where they get inspired to write or they get inspired to visit a location in your story or listen to a song or do something that your characters are doing or getting to just change their perspective and, mm-hmm. and a framing of how they see and do things. And that's what your stories can do. And that's why it's so important for everybody with the stories inside of you. And and I, anybody, you can find me online, find me on a Facebook group. I'm happy to help answer questions, do what I can. And, and then when I'm good like you, I can then start charging to help people. But for now, I'm just happy to be out there and, and keep writing. <laughs> So thank you, CJ, so much for having me on the author's porch. This has been phenomenal. You are so comfortable and easy to talk to. Well, thanks for being here. I just want to let you know that Christy Sassman has been here with us the whole entire time. She's awesome. Yeah, she is. And she's also um, part of our team here at the author's porch now, starting one November. Nice. Um, yeah. So she will be working with us here uh, with the author's porch and I'm so beyond honored and humbled to have her and on the page author services working oh, yeah, at the author's her. porch. Yeah, so, she's, yeah, she's awesome. She's yeah, phenomenal. she's she's phenomenal, her and Debbie. So thank you so much for being with us here tonight, JW. I cannot wait to listen to the audiobook, not only just for the violins, but for the phenomenal story that you've told us. Thank you for the handwriting analysis. It was spot on, absolutely spot on. Thank you for your service, not only in the military, but also for the things that you're doing for our country because you went on to serve after all of that. Guys, don't forget to come back and join us here on the porch to find your new favorite read, your new favorite author. Check out the blog, read the magazine. And we are here all week, every week. Check out our website for the author for the author services that we provide with new services coming up soon and for authors at every level in their career. Until next time, my friends, I am CJ. This is JW Zarek, author, best-selling author of The Devil Pulls the Strings. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye.